And if you would, turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, where we'll be reading from verse 11, beginning in verse 11. Ephesians chapter 2, it's on page 1160 of your pew Bible, if you're using that. Page 1160 of your pew Bible. Our Advent series this year focuses on Christ's coming in the flesh. That is our theme. Now, at first, uh, that might sound rather obvious. If you've been a Christian for a while, you are probably very comfortable already with that language. You are comfortable saying that God the Son came in the flesh. Uh, Maybe you've even sadly, uh, I know I'm tempted to do this, you've moved from being comfortable to being actually kind of complacent, if we're honest. So let me stir you up. Maybe even wake you up a little. Uh, Take just a moment to reflect on it. To reflect on what it means that God the Son became or came in the flesh. I think that you'll find that this is all truly incredible and deeply mysterious. Jesus' birth means that God chose to save us up close And in person, as one pastor put it, in the incarnation, in Jesus' birth, God, as it were, became someone we could hurt. Why was it necessary, or even desirable for that matter, for God to go to such lengths? Wasn't there a safer, a better way to do this? Let me put it another way. Isn't there a kind of desperation in all of this, a a desperation in the Christmas story? It's something we kind of forget or smother in cradles and soft candlelight. But do you sense a little desperation? If there was any other way, if there were a better way, would not God have found it? Up until that evening in Bethlehem, God had always managed to win battles through his angels and through his servants. God would give Samson incredible strength or he'd give military victory to Israel through the raising up of Moses' hands skyward. That's how God wins. He is always near, but in some sense, up until Bethlehem, he maintained a safe and dignified distance. But now in Christmas... God has done the unthinkable. In the person of Jesus, God the Son, he comes down to fight for his people in the flesh. He becomes someone we can hurt, someone we can beat, someone we can ignore, someone we can kill. And we did. So why did he do it? Here's the simple answer. It was necessary. It was necessary. Jesus came in the flesh so that through his body in his flesh, a greater victory might be won. A victory that was not possible through the mediation of an angel or a great prophet. Last week we noted how Jesus' flesh allowed him to suffer and defeat sin in the flesh. This week, I want to focus on how Jesus' body becomes the God-appointed means of our reconciliation. In his body, in his flesh, Jesus reconciled us to God the Father and then to each other. The unity we now have as Christians was not possible without the incarnation. It is only in Jesus' one body, in his flesh, that Jew and Gentile, black and white, all can truly be one and can truly be at peace with God. As we now read in Ephesians chapter 2, listen for this movement, brothers and sisters. Our passage will begin in verse 11 with hostility, And separation, completely divided against God and against one another. But then by the end of our reading, 
We are one, one glorious end time living temple being constructed in the body of Christ. A hostile people are at peace and filled with one spirit. How did it happen? The middle verses of our passage will tell us. Jesus accomplished this in his body that is in his very flesh. Through his body, he has broken down the wall between God and us, and as well as the walls we construct between ourselves. So please stand and let's hear this divine movement together. We'll read verses 11 through 22. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of the Messiah. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is God's word. Let's pray now and ask his blessing on it. Father, it is a common sin in our lives, in my life, in the life of these people, to believe that the things of the Spirit, the things of heaven, the things of Christ, are shadowy and less real than the everyday things we see and feel. And yet it is the opposite. The joys and pains of this life, though very real, are a shadow in comparison to the reality that has come in Christ. And so we may appear this morning as different races, different classes of people, and yet this is just the shadow. For in the eternity of heaven and in the flesh of Jesus Christ, every believer is one with every other believer. Grant to your people this morning an understanding of who they are through the lens of eternity. Give them heavenly mindedness and take away the dominance of the shadow in their mind and hearts. Do this, Father, we pray, as we look to your word, and we ask for it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Paul, the Apostle Paul, <clears throat> is writing Ephesians under arrest. He's under arrest as he writes this. And the whole thing is so beautifully ironic and perfect Paul, you'll remember, before he was a Christian, he was a kind of a religious policeman. In fact, the moment that seems to have moved him from being a peaceful scholar of Judaism 
to being a religious inquisitor, the moment that sort of seemed to cement all that for him was the barbaric martyrdom of Stephen. Paul was up close and personal for the blood and the crunching that happens when you beat another human being to death with stones. And he saw Stephen martyred and he left that martyrdom and became an inquisitor, seeking out those who were following the way, who were following the Messiah and put them in prison and led to their death and their torture. This was his life and he was enthusiastic about it. But that was years ago. Today, as he's writing the letter of Ephesians, Paul is now under arrest. He actually was about to be stoned in Jerusalem, just like Stephen. But the Romans and the providence of God, the Romans actually saved him. We know historically that the Romans had a barracks for their soldiers right by the temple mound in Jerusalem. There's still military things all around the Temple Mound in our day and age for the same reason, to quell religious violence. And so when the Romans heard a riot, this is all in the book of Acts, when they heard a riot starting, they emerged from their compound, they snatched Paul up, and they carried him to safety. Paul was a Roman citizen by birth, And they were not about to let this Jewish mob, these eccentric religious people, disrupt the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, the orderliness that the Romans promised their occupied colonies. That being said, Paul was still in trouble. You see, as a concession, as a concession, the Romans had granted the Jews certain unique privileges. One of those, and we still have a tablet with this written on it today, we have a record of it. One of the privileges was they had the right, the Jews, to execute anyone who violated the wall of separation. The wall of separation was a low wall that surrounded the temple in Jerusalem. And all on that wall, posted in placards, and we still have some of these, Uh, in museums, on placards on this wall in various languages, Latin, Greek, and Hebrew, there was a warning placed. If you were not a Jew and you crossed this wall, you forfeit your life and were subject to death. The Jewish mob believed that Paul had done this, that he had taken a Gentile might have been a convert, but still a Gentile, an uncircumcised man passed that wall into the temple proper. Now, Gentile worshipers, people who had come to faith but had not been circumcised, had not become fully Jewish, were allowed to come on the grounds of the temple, but they were restricted to the outer court of the Gentiles, the sort of big court that went around the temple. That was the area, by the way, that Jesus cleansed twice in his ministry. When he came to the temple, he found the Jews had allowed the court of the Gentiles, instead of being a place of prayer for all nations, and it had become a farmyard, a barnyard, remember? And he turns over the tables, the money changers, and he casts out the animals, and he quotes the prophets and says, you have made God's house, which is to be a house of prayer for all nations, all people, you have made it into a marketplace. That was the court of the Gentiles. But Paul has believed, people have come to believe that Paul has taken a Gentile convert, an uncircumcised man, beyond that wall, and into the area right around the temple, maybe even into the structure itself. Now, as we know from Scripture, the book of Acts, Paul is innocent of this crime. He didn't do that. However, he has appealed to Caesar for justice, and as he writes the book of Ephesians, he's either under arrest on his way there, or he's already in Rome in sort of house arrest. Now look again at our text with that background in mind, that background from the book of Acts. Look at verse 14. For example, Paul writes, For he himself, that is Jesus, is our shalom, our peace, who has made us one and has what? Broken down in his flesh 
the dividing wall of hostility. And look again at verse 21. Speaking of the church, Paul writes, in whom, that is in Christ, the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Paul has come to see that in Jesus' death, the veil in the temple has been torn, the dividing wall has collapsed, and the new temple is being constructed. Paul was confirming the words of the prophets in visions. The prophets had seen the nations pouring into a new temple, and Paul rightly believes that this has now happened in Jesus the Messiah. Not that it will happen all one day, one day by and by, but that it has happened already. Finally, Jesus has already accomplished this. To drive his point home, the text before you, verses 11 through 22, really moves in three phases. It's very clear in the Greek, and I think everyone sees it. There's sort of three steps here that Paul takes to make this point to the saints in Ephesus. First, Paul calls on them to remember the despair of alienation, the despair of alienation. Second, he calls on them to remember the power of reconciliation. And then lastly, at the end of the passage, Paul presents to us a holy temple, a living temple, a new people, a new nation joined together in Christ. Let's look at these steps and take these steps uh, together as a congregation. So first of all, especially in verses 11 and 12, Paul begins by reminding the Ephesians and calling on them to remember the despair of alienation. Look at those verses with me again. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Messiah You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and you were strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Here Paul Paul commands the Ephesians to remember that they were separated, that they were alienated, and strangers without God and without hope. Now this is not new. God in the Old Testament commanded Israel to remember their slavery in Egypt, to never forget where they were, where they've been, and how God redeemed them. The Passover each year was a dramatic, a vivid reminder of God's salvation, of what it meant to be a slave and what it meant to be saved out of slavery. Our Lord's Supper was established as Jesus was keeping Passover, remembering Israel's slavery and especially their deliverance. Another example, during the Feast of Booths, or tents, or tabernacles, the people would live in a tent, usually right outside their home. They would pitch a tent, and they would live in it for a time. Why? As a vivid reminder of what life was like in the wilderness. To this day, I've I've seen this myself. Some of you maybe have too. To this day, if you go to New York, especially, At certain times of the year in the Jewish community, you will see homes, even elaborate homes, gorgeous homes, with a tent attached to it. And it's because they are keeping the Feast of Booths and reminding themselves who they are and what God did for them. God wants his people in every generation, including ours, to remember and even to have physical, sort of visceral reminders Of what he has done for us. And so you will hear me say to you uh, at communion, this do, this do in remembrance of him. We keep alive vividly the death of our Savior till he comes. So here, Paul commands the Ephesians to remember what life was like under the dominion of sin as Gentiles without Jesus. If you glance back for just a moment, you can see that Paul actually began this line of thinking in chapter 2, verse 1. There in verse 1, look, he reminds them, you were dead. Remember? 
You were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world. And in the next 10 verses, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, that's the first section of chapter 2, one of the most famous in scripture, really, Paul lays out for them in vivid detail their personal, their spiritual slavery to sin and how Jesus has, by faith alone, rescued them from all of that. Famously, right in the middle, verse 5, he says, he made us alive together with Christ. But now in our passage, verses 11 through 22, the focus is shifting. It shifts from remembering the personal spiritual condition we had when we were unbelievers to now more remembering the corporate or social position we had. Remember, sin and salvation has many facets to it, many dimensions. Salvation is not simple. It's complex. Not only were the Ephesians at one time dead internally, verses 1 through 10, but they were also separated from Christ, from the promises, from the covenants, and from the people of Israel. They were, to put it simply, outside of the church, the people of God, the community of faith. Now, because we are modern Western people, uh, most of us, we tend to focus all our attention on verses 1 through 10. It really speaks to us, doesn't it? We, we like to focus, we're Americans, we focus on the individual, the personal. And so when we read verses 1 through 10 and we're saying, as we say, would say today, I was dead and trespasses and sins, that really hits home with us. As modern people were very attuned to what is personal, individual, and inward. But the Bible is balanced. It affirms all of that individual condition. We were dead in sins and trespasses individually, personally. But it also, the Bible also sees the big picture, the corporate dimension. We were also outside the family of God, which is part of our deadness. It was part of our sin. To drive all this home, uh, notice how Paul uses key biblical words of isolation in verse 12. He writes that they were alienated. It's one of his words that he uses throughout his letters. He calls them strangers, or you could translate that non-citizens. To be a non-citizen or a sojourner, sort of like being an illegal alien today. It meant that you weren't at home where you were. You didn't have the rights and privileges, and those rights and privileges were very uh, limited. You often couldn't own property or start a business. This is what made life, you'll remember, so difficult from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They were strangers in the land. They were pilgrims. They never owned the land. Their calling, of course, was to live by faith and believe that the land one day would belong to them and their children. That's the language here. It's the language of an outsider. So Paul is reminding this group of mostly Gentiles that before Messiah Joshua came, they simply did not belong to the people of God. They had no right to the long-awaited blessings of God's faithful people. The last words of verse 12 are like a coffin lid being hammered shut Paul writes in that last phrase, it's so vivid, isn't it? You were having no hope and without God in the world. This is what it meant to be uncircumcised. It was more than just a procedure, a medical procedure. It marked out a people who had hope and had God and had promises and stood in the line of faithful men and women who suffered and died and were tortured. And it was the thought and the hope and the faith that you would inherit the blessings of God's family on earth. Remember, Paul says, that before Messiah Joshua, you were alienated from all this. But notice, and and this is subtle, but it's important, notice that this alienation is not reserved to Gentiles only. Verse 11 speaks of those who call themselves the circumcision, but Paul says they are only circumcised by hands. 
What's going on there? Well, this is Old Testament language. Paul, remember, his Bible is an Old Testament. He doesn't have a New Testament. So when he goes to bed at night and reads his Bible before he goes to bed, he's reading Torah. He does not have a New Testament. So his language and his letters come from the Old Testament. And this language of being made by hands is language in the Old Testament used for idols or for something that is superficial. And so he is saying in a not so subtle way, even those of you who are Jews, you are also in trouble. Paul is reminding himself as a Jew and any of the Jews in the congregation in the Ephesian congregation, that they are not close to God simply because they have a formal ritual obedience. Now, this was not a new message. Moses gave the law to Israel, and he told Israel at that time, if you are only circumcised in your body, this will kill you. You must be circumcised in your heart. The prophet Jeremiah begins his entire prophecy by calling Israel to heart circumcision. A circumcision, we would say, not made by hands, but by the Spirit of God. And Jeremiah ends his prophecy, you'll remember, that glorious vision of the new covenant. He says what God's going to do in that age is write his law upon your heart. He'll circumcise You, not with hands, for that is what is temporary, what is passing, what is shadow, but really and truly and spiritually writing the law upon their hearts. The whole ministry of the Old Testament, the whole ministry of the prophets, and especially, I'd say, the ministry of John the Baptist was about this issue. Jesus addressed it in his Sermon on the Mount, didn't he? Remember Jesus' language throughout the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard it said, but I say to you. In other words, you, an upstanding Jew, believe that you've kept the seventh commandment because you haven't committed adultery. But you have in your heart. Your circumcision, your religion is only skin deep. So just as the Gentiles are far away, alienated from God and from each other. So even those who are relatively close, have Bibles, know these things, if God does not change them, they too will be alienated, both from God and from each other. So you see in these two verses, Paul is not so subtly saying to the Jews in his audience, we may have been closer to the truth, but we're not okay either. Or as Paul says in that wonderful verse, summary verse, Romans 3.23, for all, and you have to underline there what Paul's underlining. He's underlining the word all. He's just said Jews and Gentiles are guilty, and then he says, for all have sinned and have come short of the glory of God. And so now you can understand Paul's meaning. I hope you can understand his meaning better in verse 17 of our text. Look at that verse. Jesus came, says Paul, and he preached shalom to you who are far off Gentiles and shalom to those who are near, his own broken Jewish brothers and sisters who were uncircumcised in heart. This is Paul's message. And there you have it, the language of far and near. It's all through this passage. You see it in verse 13. You see it in verse 17. It may sound weirdly formal to us, but it was not unfamiliar to the Ephesians. In the days Paul's writing here, uh, Gentile converts, if you were a Gentile and you came to know about the true God of the Bible, uh, you would go to the synagogue, to a rabbi, uh, to a priest, to whoever, to convert And there was a ceremony at this time in Judaism called the coming near ceremony. Paul's very aware of this. Some of the Ephesians have been through this ceremony. It usually involved baptism. It's actually where we got baptism from. You as a Gentile convert, if you could not do circumcision for various political and medical reasons, you would undergo baptism and you would go through a coming near ceremony where you would bring, brought, be brought, brought, brought near to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
But then something wonderful and scandalous happened. Along came John the Baptist. He was, John the Baptist was a priest's son. He was, he was brilliant. You could see that he was different. And he was expected, no doubt, to stay at the temple and be a great priest and, and probably become high priest one day. He was gifted. But then, shockingly, he leaves the temple dresses himself up like Elijah, goes to the river Jordan, and he goes back to the beginning, and he starts demanding of Jews that they leave the temple, leave Jerusalem, go out and re-enter the land through a convert's baptism. Suddenly, people who thought they were near all their life, he was calling them to start over, to be converted to go through the drawing near ceremony that they always thought was something just for Gentiles, to be baptized in the Jordan and be circumcised in their hearts because the days of the Messiah had come. Here's the point. Paul is calling all the members of the church, Jew and Gentile, to remember the despair of alienation, to realize that without a Messiah, they were far from God and far from each other. And I wonder, brothers and sisters, if there's not something like that uh, needed right now as well, a, a version of this in our own church. Some of us, uh, like myself, are covenant children we have never felt cut off from the promises of God. They have always been our inheritance, our environment, our whole life. But others of us in this congregation know very keenly, very bitterly, what it is to be far from God and without hope in the world. Maybe you came to Jesus only after a prolonged time of absolute abject slavery to sin into the world. But whatever our differences, we all, those near and raised in the church, those far and raised in the world, we all need the gospel preached to us. Those far and those near, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. To those raised in the church like myself, we need to become powerfully aware, vividly aware. If you have not reached this, children, pray for it that you will become vividly aware of your ongoing struggle with sin, that despite all the advantages we have received, all the protection our parents have given us, all the training, all the VBSs, all the Sunday school, all the sermons, still yet left to ourselves, we are far from God in our own hearts. And those of you who lived outside the covenant community, who were born out from under the protection of the church, who walked fully in the ways of the flesh, you too need to remember, to remember those days clearly. The days before Jesus were not the good old days. Immorality, drugs, drunkenness, and earthly mindedness are not pleasant. Those who grew up far away and those who were near, together we remember the despair of sin and the alienation from God and from each other. And that leads us to the second movement of our text as we move from the despair of alienation. Now, secondly, we see the peace that God brings, the power of God's reconciliation. Paul reminds the people of this in verses 13 through 18. I won't read all those verses again, but let me read again verses 13 through 16. Paul says, but now, here's the transition point, right? But now, this was true before, but now in Messiah Joshua, that's what this text actually says, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Messiah, for he himself is our shalom, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, 
thereby killing the hostility. There is so much wonderful truth in these verses. Uh, They truly are. Some believe, some wonderful scholars believe that these verses are actually, 11 through 22, the heart of the entire Pauline message. Uh, That's how rich they are. We're not going to unpack all that today. But for our purposes, this Advent, I want to draw your attention to one main theme that runs through this whole section, all these verses. And Paul is clear. Our reconciliation with God and each other has been accomplished once for all in the body and blood of Christ. He writes that we have been brought near, verse 13, by the blood of the Messiah. Or verse 14, he's broken down the wall of separation in his flesh. And he has done all this, verse 16, so that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. Alienation from God and from each other has been dealt with, past tense. Jesus has accomplished our reconciliation. And that reconciliation has taken place through and in his blood, in his flesh, in his body. But why does that matter? Why does it matter so much that it's in his body? To make sense of it, I think, or what will help us make sense of it, we need to remember once again that Paul thinks and preaches out of the Old Testament. We often forget that. He's preaching here and writing out of the Old Testament. And virtually everything he he says is rooted in the Old Testament. The language here, and, and some even of the exact phrases, are pulled out of the Old Testament Bible. All the language here specifically, in this middle section, the language here is Levitical. It's sacrificial language, right? We have a body. We have blood, we have flesh. And through all this, Paul says that a new temple, he's about to say this, a new temple is being formed because of this ultimate sacrifice. Paul here specifically is using the language of the shalom offering, the peace offering. As a Jew, Paul knew, remember this is what he was going up to do at the temple when he was arrested, Paul knew how sacrifices at the temple worked. In order to deal with sin as a Jew, you had different offerings that symbolized different things. You had a whole burnt offering, a whole burnt offering. This was sort of the default offering for sin and probably the most important offering in the Bible. It was made every day by the priest and especially on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. In the whole burnt offering, you laid your hand on the animal to symbolize your sin going on to the animal, and then the animal was taken, the whole thing, and burned and destroyed on the altar, completely consumed. But quite often, right after that, following the burnt offering was the shalom offering, and that's the language here, the peace offering. In the peace offering, part of the animal was burned, but part of the animal was saved. And, and you were to take the saved meat and have a fellowship meal with your family and with other believers in the presence of God. Now, why did God for a thousand years require Israel to keep these different offerings? Well, it's because each kind of offering illuminated a different dimension of what it meant to deal with sin and be forgiven. The whole burnt offering reminds us that someone needs to take our place and bear our punishment. After the whole burnt offering, you trusted that God had dealt with your sin, your guilt. But what then? Where did things now stand with God? He'd forgiven you, but were you really restored? The peace offering that followed the whole burnt offering assured you that things were now right between God and you. In the peace offering, you sit down to a meal with God and with other believers. You're at the table. And the table, as you all know, is a universal sign of shalom or peace or fellowship. Now, I think unquestionably 
that all this stands behind what Paul is saying here. Jesus offering of himself in the body on the cross is from one vantage point a whole burnt offering. It is the ultimate day of atonement where Christ is consumed for my sin. By faith I lay my hand on my elder brother and all my sin is dealt with. But the scriptures don't stop there. Even as he took our sin and guilt as a whole burnt offering, so also he reconciled us to God so that now I can sit down in fellowship, table fellowship, with God and with other believers. It is this peace offering, some sense of it, that is kept alive for us in the Lord's Supper. There we celebrate not just the payment of our debt, but a fully restored relationship with God. It is also at the Lord's Supper that we are meant to see most clearly that we really are one body. Brothers and sisters, that's why on Sunday evenings when we have the Lord's Supper, I invite you forward to sit side by side. Because the peace offering continues, accomplished by Christ, but its reality is present in our midst. The wall of separation, that wall that kept Jews from Gentiles, has been torn down in Christ. Fellowship with God, fully restored, must mean also fellowship with each other, fully restored. All this happened in Jesus' flesh, in his body, in his blood. This, then, is why Christ must come in the flesh at Christmas. This is part of the powerful meaning of Advent, that in one body he might reconcile us to God and to each other. Notice how Paul drives this home in verse 14. He says he has broken down, smashed, really, that wall. The wall, of course, it was on Paul's mind, right? Because it was the basis for his whole imprisonment. He's in prison because they believe he's moved a Gentile convert over that wall. That's why he's there. But that wall had great significance for Paul because he understood what it meant. The wall, that wall of separation, did not just keep Romans or Greeks out of the temple. It did that. But that's not why Paul was in trouble, right? No one thought that Paul took a pagan beyond the wall. What they thought, the reason he's in prison, is they took a Gentile believer behind the wall. You see, that wall did not just separate Jews from Greeks or Jews from unbelievers. It separated people within the church. It separated one kind of believer, Gentile believer, from another kind of believer, the Jewish believer. And that was the segregation that existed. And so if you came, you were a Gentile and you had converted to Judaism and there were thousands of them and you made the long and difficult journey to Jerusalem for one of the great feasts, you would arrive in Jerusalem, you would arrive at the temple only to be told that you will be segregated from other believers. Stay on this side of the wall. And Jesus comes in fierce anger when he finds that that court of the Gentiles has become a barnyard and a market. So that wall was not just about keeping believers from unbelievers. That has always been true. That will always be true. We will never be able to unify ourselves fully with an unbeliever, no matter how much we may want to. But that wall, the problem with that wall, the deeper problem is that it kept one kind of believer from another kind of believer. And it is this that Jesus has smashed in his body. Verse 15, so that he might create in himself one new man taking the place of the two. So making shalom. Shalom meaning not just peace as you have it translated there, but wholeness. Wholeness. As the ultimate peace offering the Messiah's own body and blood offered first as a sacrifice for sin, but then given to his people through faith. They become one body around the fellowship table, so clearly seen in the Lord's Supper and are united. As Paul would remind the Corinthians later, 
We are all made to drink of one spirit, and we all eat of one loaf. We all feast on one final, climactic, once for all peace offering. This is the reconciliation that Christ the Lamb has brought. And that leads us then finally in our third step to the majestic vision we see in verses 19 through 22. In these verses, he sees a living temple taking shape and replacing forever the temple made with hands in Jerusalem. At one point in his life, remember Paul, who he is for a second, at one point in his life, he could think of nothing more important or more sacred than that building in Jerusalem. But now, in his mind and his heart, it is eclipsed by the temple that was destroyed and was raised in three days. The temple Jesus promised. The temple that is the very body of Jesus Christ. Look with me again at those verses, beginning in verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom, that is in Christ, the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, that is in Christ, you also are being built, how? Together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This temple, you see, it's not made by hands, is it? It is, verse 21, a living, growing thing. It has the characteristics of heaven itself. Heaven is that place where things, I remind you, are more real than here. Where things drink of what is eternal, of what is real life. It is living. And this new temple in the Messiah's body is like heaven itself. It breathes the air of eternity. It is not just made with hands. And Christ is both its cornerstone, that is the measuring point for all that is built, and also its life. For as Paul writes, it is in, in him that this temple is taking shape. The old temple, uh, the old temple in Jerusalem, its claim to fame, maybe you know this, its claim to fame was that on the day Solomon commissioned it, when it was all done, the Spirit of God appeared in cloud and fire and entered it. That was the high point of the Jerusalem temple's history. That was the big moment. But Paul knows about Pentecost, how the flames of fire settled over men and women in Christ. So he completes our passage with the amazing verse, verse 22. In him you also are being built together into what? A dwelling place, a temple for God by the Spirit, the Shekinah Spirit glory of the living God. So why Christmas? Why did Jesus need to come in the flesh to definitively, to climactically, to once for all reconcile us to God and to each other? that in his flesh we might find true shalom, peace with God. Most scholars think, and I agree with them, that this whole section of Ephesians is born out of Paul's reading of one verse, is what the Jews call a midrash or a sermon. And that the whole thing is really based out of Isaiah 57, verse 19, where the prophet says this, Shalom, shalom, to the far and to the near, says Yahweh, and I will heal him. Jesus came in the flesh at Christmas so that in his body, in his flesh, we might be reconciled to God and to each other. Both are true. And the most important reconciliation is the one between us and God. But here in these verses, Paul underlines more emphatically the lesser but also vital truth that reconciliation with God also means reconciliation with each other. Writing over a thousand years ago, the great Christian father, Chrysostom, maybe you've heard that name, 
He's preaching uh, to his congregation, and he gives this warning, and I leave it with you this morning. He says, notice, my congregation, that Jesus did not just suppress the enmity between us or the enmity between us and God, but rather he killed it. He eliminated it. He destroyed it. And so Christostom turned to his congregation and he said to them, Beware then, beware not to breed another one. Or as we might say today more simply, what God has joined together, let no man dare put asunder. Christmas means a body. Christmas means we are one body. And that is why I'm so glad this year that Christmas falls on a Sunday. Because Christmas is not just about my salvation. That's true, of course. But it's also about a wall. A wall coming down and a new temple growing in the ruins of Eden. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in reality, we are one new race. These passing distinctions between black and white, Hispanic and Asian, and all the other distinctions of class, of personality, these wedges and these walls cannot stand. For in the body of Jesus Christ, eternally and in heaven, we are one. One body, one baptism, drunk with one spirit. May Christmas remind us of these things, of our oneness in the flesh of Messiah. And may Shalom, the wholeness that is ours in Christ, prosper and grow throughout our congregation and throughout every believing congregation in the world. For we pray and ask it in the Messiah's name. Amen.